0: Today, we have finally come to the final message of the short series within the series in our study of 1 Corinthians. We've been studying chapter 15 for the entire month or so, and now I'm going to finalize this, and I just have one more message after this to close everything up in terms of our study of 1 Corinthians. So the text for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 58. So let us read this out loud together. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flesh, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Amen. Thus far, I've spoken on various themes that are related to the resurrection. And the first theme that I spoke on was on the theme of resurrection witness, or rather, resurrection witnesses. And we know that the 11 apostles, that would be 12 minus 1, Judas Iscariot, because he had betrayed the Lord, but the 11 of them actually witnessed the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that Lord privately also came and sought out Peter and also James, who was not amongst the 12, but he was his own brother that Jesus was going to appoint as the leader of the Jerusalem church. And at one time, in one site, there were 500 of his disciples who witnessed actually the resurrected appearance of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul says, and the least of all the apostles, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I had persecuted the church of Christ, but even I have been called by Christ and given the privilege of witnessing his resurrected form. And then I spoke on the theme of resurrection power, that we're not just talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection of the believers to come, but what the resurrection power is able to do is to actually subjugate all the enemies of God that are known as principalities and powers, that are of the angelic orders, that's of the highest spiritual order in the universe. The Lord, by His power, His resurrection power, is able to subjugate all the enemies and even bring destruction to death. And finally, so that God may penetrate into all that He had created, that God may be all in all. And then I spoke on the theme of resurrection incentive, that it is exactly this hope of resurrection, this conviction regarding our own resurrection, that we lead this new life of conversion that we lead a life of service and commission in the Lord, that we lead a life of sanctification, that all aspects of our lives are committed unto the Lord because we have that incentive. We have that motivation because of the resurrection power and hope in the Lord. Then finally, last week I spoke on the theme of the resurrection body, that the type of body that we have been promised is going to be amazing. It's going to be something that we could not possibly imagine. but Paul describes it as a body that has immortality, the body that is glorious, body that is so powerful, body that is, is invincible, body that cannot be touched by death or any of the enemies because all that is of the enemies of God including death, have been subjugated and will be destroyed. And so this body, That Paul talks about. is a body that will be well suitable for our heavenly existence into all eternity in the God's kingdom. Today I want to speak on the theme of resurrection effect. So what actually happens during the time of resurrection? I don't know whether you've had a chance to perhaps imagine or speculate as to what might happen on that day when Jesus comes and there's a rapture or we are all caught up bodily into the air, and there we will be united with the Lord Jesus. What does that picture look like? And so today I want to give you a sort of a a description or illustration as to what that picture looks like, what would actually happen on that day. And so I've titled the message for today, The Resurrection Effect. First thing that happens, obviously, is that we will be radically transformed. There's going to be a change that will come upon us. And that is the theme of Christianity in general. That the question is, how can we be changed? How can we be changed from our sinful, self-oriented, worldly orientation to Christ and Christ orientation? How can we be changed? People are always talking about changing their lifestyle. Know, we find ourselves in all kinds of addictions, all kinds of bondages. How can we be liberated from that state and find true transformation? I'm sure all of us who are totally committed to the Lord, we're always seeking for some kind of transformation, some kind of change. That's why we are determined at the beginning of every year to set up a new resolution. To the end of this year, what kind of changes can happen in our lives? in our family's life, in our ministry, in terms of our vision and goal and our destiny. What kind of change can happen? In verses 51 to 52, Paul says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When Paul talks about this mystery, in Greek it is mysterion. And I shared with the fact that this term mysterion is not something that is so mystical, so, so secretive, so esoteric, like what the mystery religion in the Greek culture was talking about. It's actually something that will be very evident to all Christians. God is not deliberately keeping it a secret, but for a season and time it was hidden from the side of others, because no one brought that revelation forth. But through the apostles of Christ now, including Paul, this is brought forth as a revelation. So revelation is sort of an unveiling of something that is hidden. So we say musterion in the kingdom of God has to do with open secret. It's a secret that is really open for anybody to see. If they would simply have the eyes to see and apply their faith to the Word of God and uh, in their relationship with the Spirit of God. And perhaps this mystery that Paul is about to talk about is something that's uh, one of the revelations that he described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And there he talks about uh, about this particular man, and we know that he's talking about himself, but he's, makes it sound very mysterious, like I know of a man who was caught up to the third heaven, that is, into the paradise, and he heard inexpressible things, and he's seen things that are so heavenly and so uh, mighty that no one is permitted to tell. Perhaps one of those revelations that Paul experienced in heaven was this very revelation regarding the second coming of the Lord and the rapture that we'll experience. He says, we will not all sleep. And of course, sleep is just a figurative way of saying that someone will die. But someone in Christ will die peacefully in this sense because it would be like sleeping and then waking up. So, he says, we will not all sleep. Obviously, he's saying that there will be those who will belong to the generation who will be alive to witness Christ coming. So, some scholars would say Paul really believed that he was going to be among that generation that's going to usher in the coming of the Lord. And maybe he was, and maybe later on he realized that Jesus will not be coming in his generation. But this word applies to anyone who may be of that final generation who's actually going to witness the Lord. There will be that generation who will not die. They will actually witness the coming of the Lord. Then Paul says, we will all be changed in a flesh, in the twinkling of an eye. And the term flesh here is the word atomos. And that's where we get the word "Adam." And Adam is the smallest of all the um, particles, material particles, according to the Greeks. And uh, And so, what Paul is saying is, you can't divide time. It will be like fraction of a second, and there will be a tremendous change like in a flash, in a moment. So instantaneously, we will be changed, he says, at a twinkling of an eye. And this will happen at the last trumpet. And Paul is not here talking about the judgment trumpet call, the final trumpet call that is recorded in the book of Revelation because that trumpet has to do with the judgment of God. Here, this is the trumpet call for the resurrection of the believers, and uh, we find a little more information, especially in First Thessalonians, chapter four, verses thirteen to seventeen, the description of Christ's second coming and the rapture of the believers. So let's uh, read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we, who are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And this term here, caught up, is in Greek, harpazo, and that's translated in Latin as rapturo, and that's where we get the word rapture, caught up. So along with the second coming of the Lord, there's this, our bodies will be caught up into the sky, and we will bodily meet the Lord in the sky. Now here, I don't want to get into what is known as the um, eschatology, especially trying to interpret the, the contents in the book of Revelation. Whether uh, I believe in pre-millennium or post-millennium or amillennium, or, or whether I believe in pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and all that. I don't want to get into the detail about that. I just want to generally say with the second coming of the Lord, there will be rapture. Okay? And I want to give you a detailed description as to what will literally happen when we die. What will literally happen when we are resurrected from the dead. First of all, if we would die here on earth, the moment we die, our source we'll find ourselves with the Lord in the paradise. Paul said, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And he says, I, I desire more than anything to depart and be with the Lord, but for your sake, he said this to the church in Philippi, I, I should be here, I should remain to finish my task on your behalf. And so, when we die, our soul will be with the Lord. Here, I want to bring some correctives to the wrong way of thinking that some, and even Christians, have regarding our state of death. There are some Christians even who just assume that our souls are immortal. No matter what happens, you know our souls are going to leave the body and lead the life into everlasting life. And we Christians tend to think that soul has this kind of intrinsic ability to be immortal. But that's not true. That is more of a belief that the Greeks had. But Christians, we do not believe our souls are automatically immortal. Our souls, even the souls, Jesus said, God has the power to destroy God has a power not only to destroy the body, but He has the power to destroy the source. So, uh, in order for our source to gain that kind of immortality, we have to be attached to the Lord. It is only because God allows us to have the immortality, we have that immortality. It's not an automatic thing. Okay? And another question I want to bring to you is that some Christians think that when we die we somehow enter into this kind of soul sleep because Paul talks about it as sleeping. So some scholars would even say this is literally like a soul sleep. We are kind of in this suspended, animated state. But this is not true because Paul is saying, the moment I die, I am with the Lord. Even Jesus said to this one of the thieves who repented, he said, on this day you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, you'll go through this kind of suspended state until I come back again. He says, the moment you die, you will be with me in paradise. So what happens? Well, what happens to our souls is we go to the Lord to be in the paradise. Why do we use the word paradise instead of heaven? It is kind of like a heavenly state, but it's not a complete heavenly state because we're not in a complete state of being. Because we have been separated from our body And our soul now has gone to be with the Lord. But I believe that there's an intermediate state of the soul. Maybe we receive a temporary body. Because obviously we would be able to recognize each other. It's not just a ghostly recognition, but it is a recognition that is bodily. And Jesus has the resurrection body already. So I believe that we will receive some kind of temporary type of body. But this is not complete. And therefore we are reserved in the paradise. But on the day of His coming, according to what we have just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we will join Him as He comes. And so our source and our temporary body, we will join with the Lord and the angelic hosts as they travel from the heavenly dimension into the earthly dimension. And He will be stationed in the air there will be trumpet sound that will be heard and with the archangel declaring that this is the day, this is the Lord's day, then the resurrection of the dead will happen. So this is the order and the sequence. First of all, the resurrection of the dead signifies the fact that our bodies will rise and our souls that have traveled with the Lord will be joined with the body. We will become... Literally spiritually embodied beings. Okay. And so as our source meet our body, we become complete. And then we all rise into the air to meet the Lord. But along with that, what happens? As the dead are first rising from the grave, something else happens. Even those of us who are remaining in that generation, we were automatically be transformed into that resurrection spiritual body. Just like those who are dead. Now the dead, their bodies will be joined with their souls, and they will be transformed into the spiritual body. We, with a twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed just like that into the spiritual body. So we will all be joined together as that one body, and we will be joined together with Jesus Christ, who is the head over the body. And this is the picture that is given to us. And this being raised from the dead, this rising into heaven, being captured and seized along with those of us who are alive in our bodily, in our soulish state, we are transformed. This is known as the rapture. Now, obviously, in this picture, in this description, Both in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's no description of the unbelievers. This is primarily talking about the believers. But that's not to negate the fact that the unbelievers will find their own resurrection too. But that's described in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. Somehow they're going to have to come back alive to receive the judgment of God for not believing unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So they will be resurrected on that day. But here, Paul is primarily focusing upon the resurrection of the believers. And what he is emphasizing here is that there's going to be a a swift, instantaneous transformation that will happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know the difference between our attempts to lead a life of transformation here on earth, we call it sanctification. And when Jesus comes... We experience the resurrection of the body and we receive a spiritual body that we call glorification. The difference is this. Glorification will be instantaneous. It will happen just like that automatically by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how powerful the Holy Spirit is. The effect that He can have upon us instantaneously, supernaturally. Problem here on earth is we are dragged down by sin. We still have the sinful nature and the whole world has been pervaded by sin so there's a sin effect and there's also the work of the enemy, the devil and the demons around us and then the worldly philosophy all around us that drags us. So our transformation is a gradual thing. It's a process. That's the only difference. But I believe that transformation that we will experience on the day of Jesus coming and our bodies being resurrected and we being raptured on towards Christ, to be united with Him, that power is available for us as well. And you know, we hear about stories of Christians all the time who are like, they use the term instantaneous, but it's not quite like instantaneous transformation of the resurrection of the dead, but it is something like that. They feel like something radical happened. And that happened to me in 1982, in the time of uh, a prayer. I got down on my knees, I gave my life to the Lord, and that moment was almost instantaneous. I became completely liberated from this burden and guilt of sin and the shame of it and sense of condemnation. And right there and then, I became a new person. The next day, I walked out into the world, and it seemed like the whole world had changed. In actuality, I had changed. I had changed inside out, and therefore the whole world through. My eyes now, and Christ living in me, seeing through my eyes, I saw the world differently. So we talk about those moments when we are radically transformed like that. And there are people who are so bound by addiction to drugs and alcohol and to, to sex and, and all kinds of life of perversion. There's no way they could get themselves cleaned up except by the miraculous intervention of the Spirit of God. And then they experience this resurrection power of God coming upon them, and they can say, I'm born again. And I'm sure that we can identify with uh, this kind of experience. So first effect of the resurrection is this change that will come upon us. Second effect is that of being clothed or being endowed with something that is heavenly. Heavenly. Let's read from verses 53 to 54. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul says, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. This concept of being clothed, or Paul would use the word putting on or a change of clothes. We need to understand that this putting on of the clothes is like putting on of a garment underneath the, on top of the undergarment. So, this analogy of the clothing or gowning of someone is is placing something that is of eternal value upon us who are simply operating in the natural. It has to do with endowment of righteousness, holiness, honor, dignity, glory, splendor, author, and power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-4, to four, Paul describes more in detail about this transformation that happens and this kind of a clothing from the heavenlies. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling." so that what is mortar may be swallowed up by life. And you're familiar with some of the texts in Romans and Galatians that says something like, put on Christ, that is, be clothed with Christ, or in Ephesians and Colossians, to put on this new nature, put on a new self. In other words, there's a transformation that happens when we put on Christ a new nature And something radically transformative happens. And I want you to think of it this way. It's not so much that our old clothes are kind of ripped off and thrown away. Because how can you rip off your natural self? You can't. You you bring your natural self. But the power of that spiritual reality of being in Christ is so overwhelming. It is like putting on this gown that just completely envelops, or swallows up your natural state. And I love this description here when Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. He's quoting something from Isaiah chapter 25 when he says that the death and mortality has been swallowed up in victory and that death is swallowed up because the immortality, all that is of Christ and the Spirit of God is clothing you and enveloping you and swallowing up everything that is corruptible, everything that is of the curse of sin and death. I see this figure kind of like a spiritual cosmic black hole. Just think of it like a black hole. Okay? Once you come into the kingdom, you're entering into a sort of like a spiritual cosmic black hole. And once that black hole is there, and everything is must drop into that black hole, everything will be dissolved, and there will be a completely new transformation happening when you come out the other end. We call it the wormhole, or something on the opposite end. Something goes in, everything gets swallowed up, everything gets deteriorated, and something happens, and... By miracle of God and supernatural workings of God, we become a whole new creature. I would say a more natural type of uh, analogy would be something like uh, a caterpillar. Okay? A caterpillar creates a cocoon. And it's kind of like a coffin for a caterpillar to create a cocoon because it's a hard encasing, and inside they say that the caterpillar basically gets dissolved or gets deteriorated of its original formation. And then something happens, some kind of reaction happens, and they they become transformed, and they come out as a butterfly. Whatever description that may be given, the whole idea is that we need to be clothed with completely a different nature, different reality, which will swallow up everything that is previous to that. And therefore, we experience transformation in the process. And then Paul says the resurrection effect would include a sense of victory, that we would have a tremendous sense of victory and hope in Christ. In verses 55 to 57, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? That's found in Hosea chapter 13. But he sounds so poetic. And Paul is being deliberate about this poetic way of or rhetorical way of expressing this. He's actually personifying death here. Death is like a figure, like an enemy, like a monster. And he's like like a little David taunting the Goliath, the giant monster of a man. Paul is taunting this death, which is so much more powerful and so humongous. And yet, Paul had the audacity to taunt at death. And what he's saying is, it seems like death has the victory because of its sting. And this is an analogy of a bee or scorpion with its sting. And he says, the sting of death is sin. Why is the sting of death sin? Why is sin the sting of death? Because without sin, death will be nothing. It is because of sin, death will have its power. So many people are afraid of the unknown. What happens after we die? How will we die? What is the nature of death? They're so afraid. Why? Because we're still holding on to the sinful way of thinking. We're so plagued by sinful way. We are so afraid of death. And of course, there's this fear of judgment that happens. If I die, and if there is life after death, I will be judged because I have not given my life to the Lord. And then, of course, there's a constant plague of guilt and shame that's related to sin. And that's like a death sting. So, the sting of death is sin. And then he makes this comment. The power of sin is the law. What? The law is what actually powers the sin? And here the term power is dunamis. It's like the power of the Holy Spirit. It is this tremendous power of sin that sin is empowered by the law itself. How is that possible? And I can basically summarize and say that the law is what awakens us to the reality of sin. Because without the law that we face, we would not understand that this is sin and this is a horrendous sin. But along with that, the law has a way of stirring us up in our sinful nature. I don't know if you've ever experienced that phenomenon whereby when somebody tells you not to do it right and, right there and then, something says in, in me, I'm going to do it just because you told me that it can't be done. I'm going to show you that it can be done, that I can violate the law and I can get away with that. That kind of rebellious nature will be stirred up. And I think Romans chapter 7 explains this really well. So let's go to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13. What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You know, anytime we come to Romans chapter 7, we get kind of really frustrated because it seems like the it seems like Paul is kind of playing with words, but he's not. He's, he's just being poetic and, and also using poetic technique of personifying sin here in this case. And likewise, in what we have read in the First Corinthians 15, he's personifying death. So sin is personified. Death is personified. And the law is something that just stands. It's something that is fixed nothing can shake the law as long as there's law we're going to come to terms with what sin is we didn't know that there was sin until we saw the law and then our eyes opened and we realized we've been sinning along we've been rebellious all this time and not only that in place of the law something happens and it has a way of stirring our rebellion stirring our disobedience stirring all that is of evil the law has a way of doing that, bringing sort of a curse upon our sin, and it becomes even more sinful. And because of all that, only thing we get out of this combination, the law stands, we are plagued by sin, and then there's judgment of death waiting for us, is this sense of condemnation looming over us. You know? And there's this huge guillotine waiting to chop our neck off, and we're, we're trembling in fear as we're heading towards The guillotine. But Paul says in verse 57, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the law demands perfection. Our sin condemns us to death. And this death with this sting has victory over us. But what we see is that Jesus has met the demands of the law. He lived this perfect life on earth. Nobody could point to Jesus and say, He violated the law. He was sinless. He was a human being. He, he had the option to sin if he wanted, but he remained sinless. And in addition to that, he dealt with death. He paid for the penalty of. Death. So how does that remove the sting of death? Where is something like this. Have you ever been stung by a bee? Anna, have you ever been stung by a bee? Have you ever seen somebody getting stung by a bee? Well, this is what happens. I actually saw this, so I, I know that this is true. Okay. A bee lands on somebody's body, part and stings. Once the bee stings, the one who receives that sting will be a victim of that sting. You're going to go through pain. And if you've been stung by a like a horsefly, huge horsefly, then it is so painful. I remember one summer as a Boy Scout that we, we went to this area where It was known for horse flies. And we were all very scared that we were going to get stung. So we had all these sprays. We had these long sleeves. And we were all prepared. But some of the kids got stung. And once you get stung, that will just begin to create a sort of like huge rash. And then you'll be bloated like this. And you will be scratching. You'll be irritated. You'll be in pain for a few days. Because of that. But one thing about the bee sting is this once the bee stings you, what happens is he leaves the stinger inside of you so that the bee has lost its sting. It cannot sting anymore. We may say the bee flying around everywhere, but it can't threaten us because he's lost his sting. So if we can recognize the bee that has lost his sting, we can taunt that and say, oh, bee, you have lost your sting. Come and and bite me. Come and sting me. It would have no effect. And it is like that. Jesus took the sting of the giant bee called Satan. And that sting had death venom in it. And Jesus paid... For all that, the giant bee called the devil would want him to have. And so, the devil itself and death itself has lost its sting. Perhaps Paul is talking in this language. I don't know if he examined bees carefully and understood this is what happens. But somehow, he was saying that that sting is no more. And by the way, sting is only a sting. That's it. After the sting we will be revived, we will be resurrected, we will find ourselves victorious over death. And that's what the power of resurrection is all about. Final effect of resurrection is this. If we are truly understanding the power of the resurrection, power of the resurrection to change us, to endow us with all that is of holiness and righteousness in Christ, power of the resurrection to give us victory and that we know that we have victory in Christ. Even our death, even the death passage that we go through, we don't have to be afraid because once we die and we'll go through that anguish, we'll come out the other side. We'll be in paradise with the Lord and one day we'll be joined together with our bodies, and we will be resurrected from the dead. All these are the resurrection effects. But the fourth effect, I believe it is the most important, most relevant for all of us today. That is, we are truly motivated and challenged in the Lord because of that resurrection hope and power. In verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says, first of all, stand firm, let nothing move you. I believe this is so important for us Christians, learning how to stand firm in faith instead of shaking with the wind and the current and all kinds of changes that's happening. Look at what's happening in the body of Christ even even in the past two and a half years with the pandemic. Pandemic had a way of stirring all of us up. And so people who are going to be stirred and and moved, and they're moving out of the church. They're moving out of worship. They're moving away from Christianity. And they say, wow, you know, why why bother trying to stand up against against the forces of the enemy? Why don't we just kind of flow with it? Why don't we just go with it? And they're compromising with the ways of the world. We see that all around us. Pandemic has caused so many Christians to be shaken, shaken of their faith, and they've lost the sense of firm footing. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. Because we believe in the resurrection, because we believe in the truth of Jesus Christ, we have to stand firm. We can't be shifted. We can't be influenced by the society. We can't be influenced by the events and the currents of what's happening today. And then Paul says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord holding on to your faith is important, but we have to do something practical, we have to be fully devoted to the work of the Lord instead of being busybodies, instead of just uh, you know pointing our finger at other people, and instead of seeing what is not being done, we have to be faithful in the works of the Lord. And then Paul says, Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, ultimately. All our works will be rewarded. All our works will be commended by the Lord. And the resurrection will vindicate all of us in this regard, because right after the resurrection, there will be judgment. But for us, it's not a matter of judgment between heaven and hell. It's a matter of judgment regarding what we have done here on earth. What kind of works we've done. What kind of works of righteousness we have done in the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Your labor in the Lord is not going to be in vain. And you should work as though it will not be in vain. In other words, we need to be conscious of what we are doing in this work, that this will have an effect on that day. After the resurrection, there will be judgment for what we have done. We will be held accountable on that day. And therefore, do not work as though you are working in vain. Because our work is not in vain. Our work will be richly rewarded by the Lord and there will be a great commendation of the Lord on that last day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray.